What is it that makes up a group? Is it that a group shares the same traits of identity? Is it that a group share common beliefs despite their own personal identities? What makes up a group? Is it a group in which everyone thinks the same way? Or is a group one that all behaves a certain way? What about the church? Is the church a group of individuals that all believe the same thing? Or is it a group that, despite the diverse characteristics of the individuals involved, decide to all behave the same way? Can it be one and not the other? Can it be both? This week on the Semi-Seminarian, we take on the subject, the impact of systematic theology on the church and the impact of practical theology of the church, and try and conclude what's the best path forward for the church in the 21st century. This week, we try to figure out where do we go from here? Through my own spiritual journey, I've just come to believe that the church, and when I say the church, I mean the church with a capital C, not not your congregation specifically or my church specifically, but the church, the one that we're all, all of us Christians, the one that we consider ourselves a part of, the church, it can either, either have a hierarchy, a top-down approach to power and identity and belief, or it can be faithful to the gospel message, but not at the same time. It, it can't have both. The truth is, the church can have the kingdom of the earth, which it's had several times in its existence, or it can have the kingdom of God on earth, which it's never quite held on to. But it just can't do both at the same time. The author Stacy Floyd Thomas calls this earthly, powerful church, the church of the majority. And she argues that for centuries, this church of the majority has been characterized by a doctrine and belief that empowers the dominant culture, the powerful, and that the voices of the marginalized, those that are on the fringes of power and influence, however quaint they may be, have never been the central substance of a description of the church. This about a body that's been commissioned to be a refuge for the poor and the dispossessed and the neglected. Historically, the church has been ruled by this top-down model of thinking, not only about God, but about itself. This systematic form of reasoning begins from some position of authority. Perhaps that position is one of scriptural authority or tradition or the rhetorical practice of reason. And then it deduces some right or correct interpretation or identity from that power-filled starting point. The church, informed by these forms of uh, powerful theology, have often acted as a reinforcement of a top-down economical, political, and social power structure. This power-filled voice of theology has been used timelessly to deny justice to all forms of various groups and to justify their subjugation. 
push them to or keep them at the fringes with power and voice. However, there was a change that took place through most of the 20th century. The human experience changed rapidly like it had never done before. Through two world wars and the rise of decolonization, the human experience with the church was somehow different. Before this, before the 20th century, dominant cultures simply just ignored the reality that people's various images of Jesus Christ reflected a diversity of historical and personal experiences. Over time, this dissonance created a rise in something called liberation theology. This new form of theology has not only given rise uh, rise to a voice to diverse people groups, as well as individual theologies, but it's shown these individual people and these diverse people groups how they, through their own individual experience, can find peace with God and spur forth a movement for greater social justice for all people. As a result, people wishing to engage in a struggle for justice on earth and have peace with God have now been given the opportunity to find, despite of and with respect for, their various cultural distances, a path of commonality that they can utilize for uniting in the same struggle. When all forms of various interests can now unite against oppression in the world by finding some commonality, some shared sense of a vision of God's peace for the world, a world in which justice is evenly distributed, these groups can then reform and define a different type of community. This reimagining of community allows people to share a sense of struggle as their own, not only as individuals, but within the collective. It also creates a sense that's vital towards organizing the power of people to fight the power of oppression. In the world we live, one of rapid decentralized concepts of identity and heightened senses of individualism, how is the church to respond? If theological leadership within and without the capital C church is only effective as a result of some sense of top-down authority which has been granted to them by the believer... How are we in the church to respond? Can the church of the 21st century retain its sense of moral and spiritual authority without acknowledging and incorporating the individual experience of the divine? That's the question. Given this rise of individualized theology, the truth is there's no one way to conceptualize rightly living with God and with each other. As a result, for theological leadership to retain its sense of authority, those that are engaged in leading the church spiritually must be able to respond to the cultural and the spiritual questions, as well as the cultural and spiritual needs 
in a rapidly changing world. With this rise of liberation theology, the truth is the church can no longer ignore the fact that the particulars, particular believer's theology is affected by their individual sense of social and ethnic markers that compose their identity. The truth is, the way that people experience the world, either from a position of the dominant or from the fringe of the marginalized, color the way that we perceive our relationship with God and our relationship with others. To put it bluntly, the theology of the colonizer is just no longer, and if truth be told, never has been palatable by anyone other than the colonizer. As a result, those that don't conform to a systematic dominant view of the church of the majority, well, they've been leaving the church in droves. They may not be abandoning God, but they're finding something else to do with their time on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings. Those that are engaged in theological leadership must acknowledge that they must change or they'll face a crisis of authority. Greater attention must be directed towards the contemplation of individualized theology and their impact on the wider faith community. This reality compels theological leadership as well as academic scholarship place a greater weight to the blossoming study of practical theology. A greater dialogue from the field of liberation theologies and a greater emphasis on social justice agency and its impact on theological reflection. In simpler terms, what I mean to say is that we must reimagine the church as a collective that forms its identity on how we react as a result of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and not on a systematic set of beliefs. Christianity can simply just no longer be characterized by a flowchart of if-then propositions of dogma. The reality is there's only one proposition to be considered. If the earthly ministry of Jesus taught us a way in which we can, at the same time, enter into right relationship with God and each other, then what do we do as a result? That's it. This singular supposition allows the individual to take into account their own personal human experience in relationship with God and act accordingly. This is the foundation of practical theology. But as we know, it's not as simple as that. While this concept of practical theology informs the type of spiritual belief that is reflected in the individual lives of people, spiritual authority is also expressed by individual authority. And spiritual authority underpins the authority of the church. As if the question about 
what we think about God and how do we live in response isn't a tough enough question. Spiritual authority calls the individual to decide for themselves how they trust someone or some church to teach them about how and what to think about God. As the theological author Sandra Wheeler relates, those in theological leadership are therefore invested with a certain symbolic and real power that's grounded in transcendent claims and ultimate commitments. These expressions of power depend upon this relationship of lent and received authority that run along an axis that includes points of contact, both of formalized through through denominations or informalized through relationships, sense of spiritual authority. As difficult as that definition is for me to explain, sometimes even more difficult to live out because it's so incredibly individualized. So what's the church to do? To continue to express a sense of moral and spiritual authority, the capital C Church, the church, and all of its leadership must commit to a reformation of the identity of the faith community. And when I say reformation, I mean to say that the church must foster a way in which the pieces of the faith community reform in a way that social power It's more evenly distributed. And when I say community, to be faithful to the gospel message, I don't mean a particular congregation or denomination. Largely, I use the word community here to describe any form of social collective that we as Christians might imagine. A local community to a political grouping to ethnic or cultural collectives. This concept of theology is not just thinking about God, but what we as believers are doing in that collective as a result of divine reality. The ways in which believers act to better the world is known as social justice. And the reformation of community is necessary for that social justice occur. And it's difficult due to the entrenchment of institutionalized forms of bias and privilege and denial of equal opportunity. And while it's the desired goal, it's got to be recognized by we Christians that this is not an easy fight. Because of this entrenchment, it's also the most difficult for we Christians to achieve. The Reverend Dr. William Barber relates in his work, The Third Reconstruction, that peace with God means conflict with the world. Barber's the leader of the Poor People's Campaign. His work seems to say that Christ's instruction in the Great Commandment is for people to engage in the love of their neighbor in a way that that reflects their love of God. And if Barber's suggestion is correct, and it is, then a life that honors a relationship with the divine is one that honors the life of humankind. And isn't, isn't that what church is supposed to be? Carter Haywood 
reflects on this theological belief by saying that the identification with Christ as a believer is to notice the suffering of those we know and those we don't know. So, where do we go from here? Back to our original question. Are we Christians because of what we believe? Or are we Christians because of the way we behave? Can the church continue its attempts to subvert individual identities and their understanding of the divine and somehow survive? Can we continue to prop up the church of the majority and retain spiritual and moral authority with individual believers? From the entrance of Eve onto the pages of Hebrew scripture, the divine message has included a desire. Humankind was not to experience creation in isolation. Rather, the divine plan is that men and women, each created uniquely in the image of God, were to live together in community. This sense of community is carried with it throughout the ages, a sense of belonging and a sense of protection. However, with the systematic structure of individuals institutionally into groupings also comes with it the condition of oppression or subjugation, one dominant group over a dominant other. As a result of this unequal distribution of power and of resources, which has become even more systematic and institutionalized over time, the stain of social injustice has plagued humankind from its existence. If we are as a church are to survive, we must become a church identified by how we behave. Well, there you have it, friends. I hope that this episode was as illuminating for you to listen to as it was for me to prepare. Listen, hey, before we go, if you like what we're doing here at the Semi-Seminary, and if you'd take a moment to rate and review the podcast, it certainly helps us out. Also, if you're new to the podcast, if you would take the time to subscribe, however you're listening, it'll let you know when new episodes are coming up. Later in the week, we'll be continuing our Bible study series. We're calling the Bible for Grownups. We're now moving on to the book of Genesis. This week it'll be part two of the book of Genesis. I hope that you'll join us. And until then, friends, be blessed and be a blessing.